And Father, that your amazing grace might open our eyes even right now so that we might see wondrous things out of your word. Lord, in the distractions of this life, we forget about the unseen life, the spiritual life. And we must, with great force and determination, draw our gaze and our attention back to those things that really matter. That's why this time of worship, Lord, is so important for us, not only to be in your presence, but to hear from you, to gather with your people as you gather in our midst and powerfully deal with our souls. So present, Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds that we might see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we willingly pray, amen, amen. A significant project was initiated by the University of Oklahoma several years ago. Uh, They attempted to teach a 15-year-old female chimp how to communicate, to talk. Washu was uh, trained in learning some 140 sign language uh, indicators, uh, rather simple recognition, but uh, they went over them and over them and over them until she had them down. The directors of the project thought that it was now the time to go to the next step to conceptualize these things. They wanted Washu to talk for herself. Now you have to remember that she was an extremely pampered animal there at the university. The students loved her, treated her well. She was like royalty. And so the time came for her to speak for herself, for her to put her own words together with the sign language that she learned, and this is what she said. Her first three words were these, I want out. (laughs) And she repeated it multiple times, get me out. And as I thought about the book of Romans, I think that is the sometimes unverbalized cry of every human being. I want out of this sin-cursed life. I want out from the captivity that I'm experiencing. I want out from the control of the devil and the control of my own sinful heart. And the book of Romans talks to us about amazing freedom. If you have your Bibles, please open to chapter 6, the portion of Scripture that Doug read a moment ago. And I think it is good to read in different translations so you get a feel for what is being said. Sometimes a good, reliable paraphrase is like a commentator speaking to us with insight that we might otherwise not have. Uh, We need to remember as we come to the book of Romans, the basic outline that we're working with. So the first three chapters of Romans, after an introduction that told us about a righteousness by faith that comes through Christ, 
The first three chapters emphasize the fact that we are sinners and shows us our need for the gospel. After talking about what the gospel is just a little bit, those three chapters go into detail about how we are sinners. Chapter four, chapter five gives us the heart of the gospel, justification by faith, that there is a righteousness from God revealed to man. You can't make your own, so God gives us his, and we can accept it only by faith. We receive it only by faith. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. Now, when we come to chapter six, our focus is on what we might call the doctrine of sanctification, which simply means living like Christ, or you might use the term holiness. And here we're learning to live the gospel. For the gospel that saves us by grace alone through faith alone and has nothing for us to do in it, then comes to us and says, okay, now you're responsible, although you can't do it without the help of God, you're responsible to grow in this grace. And so from chapter six and chapter seven and chapter eight, just the heart of the book of Romans, Paul labors to describe what it is to live in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live covered in the righteousness of Christ with your sins forgiven. And he starts out in chapter six with a question. Now you can't really understand the question until you go back to chapter five, verse 20. One of the greatest verses in the book of Romans. I'll probably say that a thousand times. Romans 5.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, for us to understand and see our sin and make it an impression on us. The law shows us we're sinners, clearly. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I memorized it from the old translation where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The magnanimous grace of God. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. I mean, that truth is so wonderful that you could get carried away with it in the wrong direction. And apparently some people did. Because Paul then starts out chapter 6 with this question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If grace is greater than our sin, then the more sin, the more grace. What a perverted idea, but someone came up with it. In fact, when you read in the book of Jude, there are those who pervert the grace of God doing this very thing. Verse 15 has another question very similar. What shall we say or what then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Paul, back in chapter 3, verse 8, said this, Some slanderously report that we are teaching, let us do evil, that good may come. Let us sin more, that there'll be more grace. And one skeptic, actually, who dealt in religious things, said this, If you are only an ordinary sinner, 
you don't give God enough glory. So be a really good sinner. And then God will get great glory. It's amazing how we can take a wonderful doctrine and pervert it so quickly. So Paul answers this with verse 2. And in the Greek, the word never comes first. Never may it happen. By no means. Absolutely not. That's ludicrous. Based on what, Paul? Well, based on this simple truth. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Christ came to free us from our vices, not to feed them. He came to make us holy. And so, we are those who have died to sin. I want to ask three questions as we go through the text, just a few, for a few verses, first few verses of Romans 6. Here's the first question. What has happened to us? What has happened? And verse 2 says, we've died to sin. By the way, it's in the aorist tense, not to get technical, but simply to highlight the fact that it's something that happened in the past, done deal, we died. Not that we're dying, although there's another aspect to sanctification that we'll deal with uh, later on in chapter six and seven, but we have died to sin. We have to understand what that means. It's interesting that in chapter five, The death of Christ is mentioned repeatedly about five times, but in chapter six, the death of the believer is mentioned even more. And it's connected with the death of Christ. But isn't that an interesting phrase? We are those who have died to sin. Sinclair Ferguson has an interesting comment on this portion of scripture. He says, our translations are scarcely able to bring out Paul's precise, nuanced meaning for the relative pronoun he uses to convey this idea. We are the kind of people who have died to sin. What kind of people are we? We're the kind of people who have died to sin. He says, by comparison, in the English, we often express strong, a strong sense of disappointment when we say to someone, how could you, you of all people, do this? And we're showing the incongruity between, the inconsistency between who the person is and what the person has just done, right? How could you do that, being who you are? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. We're the kind of people who died to sin. How in the world would you want to keep on sinning or living in sin? So that's his answer to the idea of abusing grace and living a life, doing whatever you want to do. The wonderful paraphrase that I often use is the old paraphrase from J.B. Phillips. We who have died to sin... How could we live in sin a moment longer? Now here's the interesting thing. We're going to find out that we still sin. And 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and you're a liar. But we have died to sin and we have to understand the importance of that. 
the impact that that is supposed to have on our life. You see, the death of Christ means salvation for us, but the death of Christ is also a pattern for us. And in him, we died to sin. Look at verse three. Or don't you know, which means there are a lot of people who are ignorant. <laughs> there, there is a translation, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, and it just, I laugh every time I read it because it says, uh, and, and you, uh, something about, and don't be ignorant brethren. And the, the point is, don't be ignorant, comma, brethren. But without the comma, it says, don't be ignorant brethren. And we, we've got a lot of ignorant brethren. I put myself in that same category. We are ignorant of what God has said. We're not stupid people. We're unlearned in the truth of Scripture. We either don't know it or we've forgotten it. And Paul uses this often. He does it in 1 Corinthians. Don't you know that your body's the temple of God? Huh? I mean, that's such a common truth. Without knowing that, you're going to do some really stupid things. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So here's the second question. I have died to sin, but when did it happen? And the answer, when we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. Now the word baptism, just the Greek word, means to immerse or submerge. It is interesting to me that when the translators translated the New Testament, instead of translating what the word baptizo meant, they invented a new word, baptism, so that people could be snowed. I really think that translators did that because they didn't like, they didn't like uh, the meaning of the word and how it affected their uh, particular mode of baptism. I could be wrong, but that's not the point. The point is the word means to immerse. And there are at least two different baptisms in the New Testament for the believer. There is spirit baptism and there is water baptism. Spirit baptism, you might say, is um, it's internal, non-visible. We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but all of us have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. We've been baptized into one body. That's a mystical thing. That's a spiritual thing that happens invisibly to us, and it happens when we believe in Christ. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are immersed in Jesus, one of the best ways to describe a Christian is that they are in Christ, right? We are in him so that what he has done is accounted to our uh, life, is attributed to us. We are in Christ. So that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. We are placed in Jesus by one spirit that forms one body called the church or the body of Christ of which he is the head. Then physically we go into water baptism. 
Water baptism does not save. It is a declaration that you are saved. Going into the water declares that you've already gone into Christ. But it's a beautiful picture of dying, being buried, and coming up again. So when we trusted Christ, we were baptized into Christ, and at that moment, we became vitally connected with Christ so that what Christ has done, we have done. And the death of Christ actually becomes ours. We are fused with Jesus. I like Titus chapter three and verse five that says he saved us, not because of our righteous deeds, the deeds that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That is the work done internally where he takes our sin away. He gives us a new heart and he places us in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, it's interesting to note that the preposition used throughout the New Testament is very consistent. We are baptized into Jesus. And thus, we are in him, the result. Baptized into him. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son. In Acts chapter 8, the Samaritan believers trusted in Christ. And in uh, Acts chapter 16, the believers in Ephesus, both times they were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And so our union with Christ, invisibly established, is in a very tangible and public way signified when we enter into the waters of baptism. And by the way, it is interesting to note that in the New Testament, you don't have believers who are not baptized. I mean, by and large, argue the thief on the cross, but that's a different situation, is it not? You don't have believers who aren't connected with a local church and you don't have believers who go through the waters of baptism. Because although it didn't save them, it was vitally connected with their declaration of being saved and their desire to be part of the church. So baptism, in a sense, is our funeral and our resurrection from the grave. At least in that outward sense, Indeed, it is declared. Now, look at verse 4 and 5. Therefore, or we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death. In order that, purpose statement, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too should live a new life. Almost the same thing is said in verse 5 in, in beautiful parallelism. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death or in a death like his, we certainly also will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, we don't have time to deal with both of those. We're going to talk about being united with Christ in his death 
This morning, Lord willing, we're going to talk about being united with Christ in his resurrection next Sunday. But we are united with him. The word united is the Greek word that almost transliterated is our English word symphony. And it was also used in horticulture. It had the idea of growing together. Perhaps one of the best illustrations is to graft a branch into another tree. And when you do that, you are uniting branch and tree so that they become one. The grafted shoot severed from its native stock derives life from its new stock and we are forever united. It encompasses everything for the believer from the point of conversion until the, this moment in which they are living, our union with Christ. And by the way, in the text, it occurs multiple times. We were baptized into Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were buried with him. We died with him. Over and over again, this union with Christ in our death is so vitally important. So that's what happened and when it happened, when we trusted Christ. Now the biggest question is, what does it mean? What does it actually mean? And verse six gives us a wonderful sense of what this dying to sin actually means. And there are some real misunderstandings uh, on this particular issue. So Paul says in verse six, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, statement number one, so that, that's always a purpose statement, for this reason, that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, the first two propositions are a little challenging and need some time for us. I think it's interesting to note that when we read this, the old self, sometimes it's the old man, sometimes people will say the old nature was crucified with Christ. And then they begin to argue from analogy. If you're crucified, you're dead. We're dead to sin, right? Yes, we're dead to sin. That means we're insensitive to sin. Now, that means we no longer desire sin. Uh, that means that sin has no influence on you. You're dead to it. If I brought a corpse up here, it'd, <laughs> it'd be an interesting sermon. <laughs> but, and, and this would be horrible, but it, you could do anything you wanted to to the corpse and the corpse wouldn't argue, right? Stick it with a pin, wouldn't say anything. I get Keith up here, stick him with a pin, different story. <laughs> ah, therefore, since we are dead to sin and the old man is gone and crucified, I'm no longer sensitive and interested in sin. The problem with that is, I still am. In fact, Paul is going to say in Chapter 6, verse 12 and 14, don't let sin reign over your mortal body. Well, that's gratuitous if sin can't reign over my mortal body because I'm dead to it and don't desire it. And when you get to chapter 7, although there's a lot of debate on exactly what it means, I see Paul as a strong believer 
battling with the sin within him. Now, if I told you you're not a Christian, if there's any desire in you to want sin, all of us would be in trouble, right? And the people who say, no, sin has no pull over me. I have no desire for it whatsoever. I want to say, liar. So I think that's a misunderstanding. By the way, what happens to Christians in this text happened to Christ. And you cannot say Christ is now no longer sensitive to sin. He once was, but now he isn't. Can't say that. So our fallen nature is still alive and kicking Maybe this is a better way to think of it. If, if one kingdom fights against another and conquers it, the rule of the conquered kingdom has been broken. But are there not still some soldiers fighting in the bush who have not given up the fight? True story, after World War II, they were... Some people were on a remote island and they found a Japanese soldier. I think it was 30 years after the war, still fighting the war. And I think that's really what is happening here. A better way to understand the middle part of the verse is that we've been crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. I think it's awkward when you read the middle of verse six and say the body ruled by sin might be done away with because many of us are thinking of the physical body, but it's not talking about the physical body at all. It's talking about something substantial, sin, that still is very active and alive within us, but its reign has been rendered powerless. Remember in chapter five, sin reigned over us. Sin reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though there wasn't a law, sin was still in control. Its dominion was felt over everyone to the place where we had to sin because it was our nature to sin. And that's all we knew. So we we must not argue from analogy. The point Paul is trying to make is that the reign of sin has been broken in our lives. And that this old self, for we know that our old self was crucified, is not our old nature, but it's the old pre-conversion life. Committed to sinning, but it now died. And we died in Christ to that old life. It's the whole idea of repentance. It's the idea of in Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a few rebels still fighting in your heart. Still, sin still remains within me. And as we get to Romans 7, we'll see that we fight it on a regular basis. So the sinful self, the man we once were, 
is gone. The body of sin is not the human body, but it is this ethos, this ego, this old way of living that has been destroyed. The word destroyed doesn't mean to become extinct. It means to be rendered powerless. So it's not my sinful nature, but my former life that is gone. Something decisive has taken place. When I died with Christ, I died. Remember Paul saying in Galatians chapter two, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. So it wasn't the physical me that died. But the night life I now live in the flesh, I don't live for the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is one of the most amazing verses. A verse to embrace. You're dead to sin because you're united with Christ and your old way of living is gone. And yet, if we're not careful, we can yield to sin and allow that sin to begin to rule us. But the power of that sin has been broken by the amazing grace of Almighty God. And so we look at verse six. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the sin that still remains in us has been derived of its power in order that we should not be enslaved to sin. Look at this translation from the contemporary English version. I think it's very helpful. We know that the persons we used to be were nailed to the cross with Jesus. This was done so our sinful bodies would no longer be the slaves of sin. I don't especially like the sinful bodies part because your body is not sinful. But the sin that resides within us would no longer control us. Or how about Eugene Peterson's message? Could it be any clearer? (laughs) Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin miserable life. And I am no longer captive to sin's demands. Here's the point. You have been freed from the power of sin. And you're not under its control. Verse seven. And the one who died is freed from sin. Justified. Freed from its punishment. And free from its control. Sin no longer determines my existence. It no longer dominates my life. The horrible tyranny of sin has ended. Like citizens liberated from a long oppressive ruler, we have been set free. The very thing we are crying out, let me out of here. And God has. Now here's the kicker. We don't live like we're dead. We need to learn every day to say, 
I'm going to pick up my cross, take up my cross and follow Christ. I die daily. I'm not alive anymore. It's not me. It's about, not about me. It's certainly not about sin. It's about Christ and living for him. And I'm now free to do what is right for motives that are pure and sterling and pleasing in the eyes of God instead of for selfish motives. Now, I don't always live like that, but that's how I can live. And I need to be more conscious that I'm dead, that I'm dead, that I'm dead. Frankly, there's too much of me that is still alive. And it gets in the way of following Christ and enjoying the richest blessings that he has offered to me. Are you dead? In Christ? If you are in Christ, you are. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to say no to sin and yes to the Savior. The unconverted person doesn't have that power. We're not surprised when they say yes to sin. We should be surprised when Christians say yes to sin. By the grace of God, we're not just dead in Christ, we're alive to entirely new life. One time there was a funeral service And people were talking about the service, and afterwards they were talking about, hey, what kind of eulogy would you like at your funeral service? What do you want someone to say when you have died? And one person responded by saying, he just moved. (laughs) Not dead yet, still alive. I'm dead, but in Christ, I'm alive. Alive to God. And there's nothing, nothing more exciting than that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the impact of the death of Christ in our life, our death to sin, might so affect us every day that we can say to sin, you are not my master. And I don't have to yield to you. I'm yielding to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. And Lord, when we fall, we thank you for 1 John 1, 9, so we can get back up again, confessing our sin, finding fresh forgiveness, and renewing our commitment to live for Jesus alone. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know the Savior, I'm sure much of this talk seems strange. But I pray that there was something said that would begin to work on their heart and draw them to the realization that Jesus died for them to save them from their sin and to get them out of a life of captivity into a life of glorious freedom and hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.